0: Welcome to Apocryphal Australia, where we present stories about Australia's past that highlight the obscure, the unsubstantiated and or the fanciful. These are tales of people, places and events that have been hitherto overlooked. So we're going to research them until the cows come home, and then we'll present them to you. It's a job that needs doing, and we're the ones to do it. Well Stephen, it's episode three time and are we ready to dive into it or have you got uh, anything to start with?
1: No, I haven't got anything to start with. I'm sort of keen to to get to get into it, I
0: suppose. Before we do, I've got uh, something. I have something on the desk here because we had a mysterious delivery this week, Stephen, from one Moira Walbrook of Little Canning, South Australia. She says she's a huge fan of the podcast and, and she sent something she found when clearing out her late father's house, something we could be very interested in.
1: Well, this sounds intriguing,
0: Let's go for it. (laughs) All right. Now, it is actually ordering on the unbelievable, and mostly because the delivery actually arrived at Apocryphal Australia headquarters before Moira's email, and I took the liberty of opening it while you were hot on the trail of something or other. What were you hot on the trail of, Stephen? Stephen?
1: Well, all sorts of things Michael, I've, I've, as you know between between seasons I did an awful lot of traveling around Australia, going into little country towns and things like that and and to be to be perfectly honest, I spent the last few weeks at home on the computer chasing up things, doing more research into a wide variety of people, places and events.
0: That's the other side of the job isn't it really Stephen? Yeah you go out and do the tracking down, but then you have to get it all onto the computer and make sense of it. That's right. And your computer keeps
1: making little noises at you while you do it.
0: (laughs) Now, with this special delivery, look, I didn't want you or the listeners to miss out, and I just couldn't restrain myself. I wanted to open it. So I carefully recorded the opening of this mysterious delivery, and so here it is. Okay, it's about the size of an old tea chest, I reckon. About a metre high, half that in width and depth. We were sent keys in a separate envelope, but the chest is solid, really solid. And nailed down. I'm going to have to break out the tools. Okay, it's taking a bit of time. I said it was solid, didn't I? Now for the chains and locks. There we go. Let's see what's in there. Totally empty. That's disappointing, I suppose, but we won't enter any correspondence with anyone who claims that it's a giant metaphor for our podcast. There you go, Stephen. Yeah, it was a bit of a disappointment, I must admit. A
1: tiny, tiny little bit anticlimactic i think yeah
0: but uh, well keep those letters parcels and packages rolling in folks because we will put up with a little bit of disappointment in order to find those nuggets of gold that do roll into apocryphal australia headquarters now steve today's episode i've got to admit i've sort of gone totally geographic if you like i'm doing a lot of places and not so many people or events how about you
1: a little bit of a mixture, a couple of people, and I've and, and also I'm looking at one place, but I don't think it really matters whether we're looking at people, places, they're all interesting.
0: Exactly. I mean, the way we approach these episodes is that they're pretty much like a fruitcake. There's lots of interesting bits and pieces in them, something for everyone. I thought you were going to
1: say then, and there's always a few nuts.
0: <laughs> oh yes, the metaphor is not strained at all. Would you like to start off, Stephen?
1: I'd like to kick off this episode with the very interesting Catherine Hockaday. Catherine was born in 1958 in Junket, a small town in England. She emigrated to Australia with her parents in 1964. She was a quiet yet noisy child, and she soon came to love the wide open spaces that inner suburban living afforded. There was little in her childhood to suggest the path her life would take, apart from the fact that she managed to keep breathing, so it was assumed that there would be something in store for the young Catherine. In 1974, her parents decided to risk all and they opened a haberdashery shop and the young Catherine could often be seen. It was supposed she would marry and have children and settle down, possibly in that order, but Catherine had other ideas. She had an idea about buying some land, giving up the booze and the one-night stands, and then maybe settling down in a sleepy little town and forgetting about everything. But she soon realised that popular ballads about English streets were not for her. It seemed that Catherine went out of her way to confuse and antagonise her parents and everyone around her. But she was soon out of her teens and decided on the course that would let her make her mark as a great unknown Austrian. Having achieved that, She went on to make her mark here in Australia. Catherine became known as the Nurse Nightingale of the 90s, when she was found to have been working in the public health service for eight years without once drawing a wage. Indeed, hospital workers said that no one could remember employing her. She just turned up between shifts and kept arriving for work. The hospital involved, St Shirley's, threatened to sue her for trespass but realised that they would have a public relations backlash on their hands. They agreed to pay Catherine back pay as well as promote her. They even agreed to actually employ her. Catherine, however, said that she'd become disillusioned with the health service and decided to take her talents elsewhere. She took the money owed to her and invested wisely. She came to the attention of the general public once more when she became involved, somehow, with BHP the big Australian company, and ended up on the board of that August company. She then went on to service for a time with the Howard government in an advisory capacity and earned a seat on the economics committee. Catherine now lives in Sydney. She's receiving 18 pensions from various countries, as well as undertaking numerous consultancies. She sits on the boards of 28 national and international companies and breeds peas for fun and profit.
0: Well, it's certainly a rags to riches story there, Stephen.
1: Yeah, sort of sort of low-key in her way, but
0: hugely successful. Well, Stephen, I'm ready to jump into my very first story for today. This one took a little bit of researching, but... Well, like most research, it was just wonderfully exciting all the way. And I'm talking about Hadrametum. Hadrametum is the name of the fabled Roman settlement in the far northwest of Western Australia, believe it or not. Since European settlement of the continent, many have claimed to have stumbled on this ruined town, but no positive identification has ever been made of its location. Indigenous people of the far northwest have legend to speak of hard-headed, white-skinned people, but nothing more. Roman sources are also sketchy, but references to an expedition to the south of the globe can be found in the writings of Pliny the Younger, as well as an obscure reference in Londinium on ten denarii a day by the less well-known Camillus of Ostia. Professor Carl McNulty of the University of Stuttgart has spent most of his academic life researching these and other writings. He has gleaned that the expedition was successful and that some years later it sent at least one group back to Rome, which arrived in 84 AD. These returnees reported that the town of Hadrametum had been founded in a hot and arid land, a land of strange animals and thoughtful people, a place where even the stars were different, not to mention the droughts and flooding rains. These hardy explorers were apparently affected by their sojourn away from Rome and spent most of their time getting drunk, being unimpressed by the architecture and loudly announcing that the home they'd founded in the Southland was the God's Own Country. A few had enough money to set up an eatery in Rome and wine house that soon became immensely popular, while one entered the arena decked out with strange headgear, upturned on one side. The most renowned of these returnees, however, was Nicator Machius Arquettius, a well-built and gregarious fellow who became an actor. He was successful almost immediately in the knockabout comedy The Donkey and the Pot of Gold, but he showed his versatility soon after as the tragic hero of The Anger of Hercules. He was as famous for his off-stage brawling as his acting, and soon had a devoted following. He reputedly died in an accident with a stonemason and a goose. In 1888, William Darcy reported that while he was searching the Kimberley area, he'd found mysterious ruins at the mouth of a small river. He vividly described marble columns, well-made roads and more aqueducts than you could poke a stick at. His claims were scoffed at, mainly because he'd been exploring Tasmania at the time. However... Darcy's report gained some coverage in the contemporary newspapers. Several expeditions were mounted to find the lost Roman town, but none was successful. In 1910, stockman Donald Weatherly was searching for mislaid cattle when overtaken by a sandstorm. Seeking shelter in what he thought was a rock formation, he made himself and his horse as comfortable as possible. In the morning, he found that he was in the ruins of a large building exploring further wetherly discovered villas and communal areas extensive baths with underfloor heating and plenty of aqueducts he rode hard for the tintara homestead and brought several others back to the area but was unable to locate the place in which he'd sheltered for the night if it weren't for the unusual silver coin he'd brought back with him his story would have been laughed off however Earth University identified the coin as a Roman denarius from approximately 60 AD. Many others have been attracted to the romance and possible wealth of the lost Roman town of Australia, but no trace has ever been found.
1: Now, Michael, this is this is one of those cases where, in the office of Apocryphal Australia, we should have a big whiteboard and we should list what we're looking at, because I have actually been to Hadrametum.
0: Oh, Stephen, 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 two couple of unbelievable things there. One, you've been to Hadrametum. Two, we don't have a whiteboard. I mean, how can we call ourselves a going concern without a whiteboard? But please, go on.
1: Well, not much to report, really. I thought it was an abandoned pizza hut. I want to talk about, well, like you're talking about three places, I think, today. I'm. This is my second uh, piece. This is also on a place. This is all about the Great Wall of Jindaberry on the Locut Plain. The Great Wall of Jindaberry was the only man-made structure visible from Japes Peak, which rises majestically some one and a half metres above sea level and represented a marvel of modern engineering practices when it was constructed in 1904. Stretching from one point in Western Australia to another, the Great Wall, as it came to be known, was designed to protect Western Australian wheat fields from the ravages of eastern rabbits. Construction began in early 1903, following a survey of the proposed site by A.W. Cumming, the acclaimed herbalist and rose breeder. The proposal to build the wall stemmed from the realisation that hordes of rabbits had actually made the crossing of the Nullarbor Plain and were posing a threat to Western Australian farms. Now, many locals believed that the invaders were actually decent, law-abiding Western Australian rabbits simply because the invading rabbits did not have the obligatory I crossed the Nullarbor sticker on them. But the error of their ways was soon pointed out to them and the farmers set to with guns, rocks and poisons. It was a slaughter but still the furry tide came. The idea for the wall came from Edith Pinth, widower of Cotties, who claimed that she kept snails out of her veggie patch by building a six-foot-high, solid-steel, electrified fence. In a letter to the West Australian Times, she wrote, If a widow of my age can do it, why can't the government? Goaded into action, the WA government sprung into action an electric solid steel fence stretching the length of the state boundary was considered desirable but inappropriate. Instead, a somewhat reduced electrified brick fence was commissioned. In 1904, the 1,139 miles, or lots of kilometres, of fence was completed. By 1905, the remaining 113 miles, which is not so many kilometres, of fence had to be dismantled when it was discovered that the carrot pulp used in the construction of the bricks was proving to be not quite the ideal building material. The replacement rabbit-proof fence was constructed of wire and completed in the same year. Whilst this new wire fence was cheaper, it just did not have the awe-inspiring presence of the fence it replaced. However, on a positive note, it did actually work and can still be seen today. An interesting side note to the construction of the original Rabbit Wall was the fact that all of the builders had somehow ended up on the wrong side of the fence, which led to Western Australia's great building slump that continued through the early, early years of the 1900s.
0: Well, Stephen, I can honestly say that that's the first episode of this series that earns this. That's apocryphal. (laughs) In fact, I'm going to double up because it was truly. That's apocryphal. (laughs) There we go. So (laughs) we're well on the way to, I suppose, doling out wonders and excitement for all of the listeners out there. All right. I'm going to roll straight into my second story for today, Stephen. That is Henderson's track. Henderson's Track is in the far northeast of South Australia, and over its 200-kilometre length features some of the country's most inhospitable landscape. Originally used as a stock route, Henderson's Track was abandoned in 1888 due to the extreme conditions in the area. Beginning on the outskirts of Torrance Wells, South Australia, and finally reaching the town of Despair, South Australia, the track had been forgotten for decades and only now is beginning to come to the notice of the public again. Henderson's track proper is said to begin northeast of Torrance Wells. The first 10 kilometres meanders over a combination of sandy dunes and spinifex country, a relatively benign beginning. Then it crosses the first of the dry riverbeds, the Crikey Creek, which is famous for never having seen water in over 150 years of recorded observation. The banks of the Crikey Creek are studded with peculiar spiky stones known as slasher lights. These glassy objects, the size of small oranges or large mandarins, were cursed long and loud by drovers as they were the ruin of the feet of any sheep, cattle, horses and snow leopards in the area. After Crikey Creek, the country starts to turn bad. Forty kilometres of irregular corrugations in hardened mud became known as the Devil's Washboard. But many a stockman was sorry to see the last of it, as its end signalled the beginning of the Trip Hammers of Doom. This unusual natural feature is found at the bottom of the Gorge of Death, the only way through the impassable haunted ranges. Vast stone pillars regularly fall and pick themselves up again, pulverising smaller rocks and annihilating anyone that travels Henderson's track. Once through the Gorge of Death, the exhausted traveller is faced with the Plain of Razors, an undulating, picturesque, but deadly stretch of countryside studded with sharp metal blades. If successful in passing the Plain of Razors, the traveller has some respite while making his or her way across the perpetually flooded river of blood, the vivid colour of which comes from an unusually high concentration of oxygen in the haemoglobin. After dragging oneself onto the far bank of the River of Blood, the traveller is faced with the taunts of the spotted abuser, a rare bird confined to this locale. The spotted abuser has the quaint characteristic of hurling personal insults at passers-by, strangely always having knowledge of intimate details best not made public. The last 50 kilometres of Henderson's track are made up of the perfectly flat, glass-like sun's playground. Temperatures here are reputed to rise close to 200 degrees C, but no accurate measuring device has ever survived the experience. I've actually been to Henderson's track. (laughs) Now, why is this making me think of a song from way, you've been everywhere, Stephen, you've been everywhere.
1: Not quite everywhere. Anyway, Henderson, I
0: don't recommend. <laughs> no stars.
1: No, so I went on the tour uh, organised by Idiosyncratic Tours <laughs> and, and I thought, oh, nice. Yeah, see some different places off the, off the usual tourist tracks, see some different stuff. But it was only afterwards I found out that Idiosyncratic Tours had changed their name from Idiotic Tours. Anyway, second worst holiday I've ever been on.
0: All right. I think the best way to get it out of your mind is to roll straight into your third story for today.
1: Yes, indeedy. Let's get straight into a sad, cautionary tale about a forgotten Australian. This is all about Pamela Juice, 1857 to 1938. Australia's first operatic lady of song, Pamela Juice, was born in Fitzroy, Victoria, to alarming parents. Pamela's father, Trevor, was a butcher and turf accountant and three times winner of the Meat Industry Excellence Award, The Tenderiser. Pamela's mother was an exotic dancer who worked under the name of Maud Winslow, while her real name was Trixie Moritz. The Juice home was always full of music song with Trixie practising her art and Trevor singing mindless ditties with no tune, no recognisable lyric and no redeeming features. He said he did it just to annoy people. Nurtured on this compost heap of influences, Pamela's small passion for the opera grew like a mushroom in Cowpat. People marvelled that Pamela could produce such sweet sounds given her background, but older, wiser heads pointed out that she'd heard the alternative. Pamela was discovered by P.D. Bannerman, a famous empresario and entrepreneur of the time who heard Pamela singing while he was attempting to get some cheap sausages from Pamela's father. P.D. Bannerman immediately signed Pamela up and before you could say exploitation, he had the young girl touring every major city in the country. Before long, Pamela was the toast of the arts community and... How Pammy, as she came to be known, was loved by all and sundry. At the age of 18, Pamela received a proposal of marriage from P.D. Bannerman and, after gaining her parents' permission and some cheap sausages, they were wed. Pamela then embarked on a world tour that can only be described as breathtaking in its scope and tacky in its result. The tour lasted 40 years. Towards the end of this mammoth achievement, it all got a bit sad. P.D. Bannerman stated that Pamela's fans loved her because of her youth, not because of her voice. So he insisted that she always dress as a little girl, even though she was 57 and fairly big with it by the end of the tour. The advertisements for the last leg of the tour pronounced Pamela's ability to shatter champagne glasses would be demonstrated and, while she could once achieve this feat with her voice she was now reduced to sitting on the glasses. In January 1938, broken, poor and friendless, Pamela left her husband and the opera circuit a scarred woman, not least because of the glasses. She died shortly after. The only legacy left by Pamela Juice was that, for a while, people enjoyed a drink that was named after her, but the novelty value of having a glass of Pamela soon wore off. Pamela Juice. Australia's own songbird.
0: Stephen, I must admit that we do have stories now and then that m- might give us a laugh or two, a moment of, of levity, but you've just presented something that really makes us think. And really brings down the hilarity level. <laughs> It's a little bit a bit doleful after that one. But I mean that's that's all grist for the mill. The past is full of sad stories. We we can't pick them, we can only report on them, really. That's yeah. true, that's true. And speaking of reporting, I get the chance to roll out my last geographic feature for this episode. It's geography, geography, geography with Michael Pryor today. This unusual granite outcropping, known as the Pernomby Rocks, lies approximately 70 kilometres southeast of Kalgoorlie, West Australia, near the Salt Lake, Lake Lefroy. The first European explorer to see this formation was the eccentric Clive O'Dell in 1830, the same Clive O'Dell who later found notoriety for publishing The Joy of Nude Exploration. He promptly forgot about the Penombi rocks after noting the sighting in his journal. The following year, they were visited by Piotr Panombi, who sketched the formation and named them after himself. The Penombi rocks are best described as a scattering of roughly spherical granite boulders, ranging from 30 centimetres to 3 metres in diameter. Counts vary, but most agree that there are somewhere between 40 and 50 rocks heaped in a rough pyramid some 20 metres square. The Penumbi rocks are notable for a number of unique features. Early last century, they were the destination for many travellers due to the mysterious Dawn Chorus. Muriel Sleeth described it well in her memoir, Things I Have Seen and Done, 1909. "'On rising, I surprised our guide, Mr. McGillicuddy. "'Once he was fully dressed, he informed me that dawn was only moments away, "'and we woke the others. "'We had barely roused Mr. Barnacle "'when the first rays of the sun struck the forbidding rock formation. "'Instantly a low humming could be heard, "'but a stern glance at Mr. McGillicuddy put an end to that nonsense.' Then we sensed a strange huffing or whiffling noise, as if a gigantic schoolboy clad entirely in rough corduroy and surge was running back and forth on the other side of the rocks, his thighs rubbing together. Mr Barnacle investigated, but returned empty-handed, assuring us that there were no schoolboys, gigantic or otherwise, in the vicinity. He neglected, however, to canvas the matter of fabric. But I let it pass as I was too overcome with the eerie and provocative sound emanating from the Penumbi rocks. It is a sound I will never forget. The other notable feature of the rocks is the intermittent appearance of intense magnetic activity in the area. Several tourists have told tales of waking up and finding themselves trapped on the surface of the larger boulders with belt buckles or wristwatches held fast against the rock. The phenomenon typically lasts for minutes and generally appears only during months with an R in the name. No scientific explanation has been forthcoming unless one gives credence to the University of Western Australian Investigation in 1971, which released a 200-page report that essentially says that the effect is due to coincidence. Rumours also abound about a curse associated with the Penombi rocks. Legend has it that if a fragment is removed from the rocks and taken away, the possessor will experience loss of navel lint and never be able to pronounce the word particularly, until the fragment is returned to its rightful place. I remember when I visited the Penumbna Rocks. (laughs) Here we go.
1: (laughs) No, 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 I, I found the experience profoundly moving, and I was particularly (laughs) Particularly lucky. <laughs> I was especially impressed with Stephen,
0: the Steven. find that piece of, find that fragment and mail it back if you have to. Oh, bang! I forgot about that. <laughs> All right, and I think that's about it for our stories today, Stephen. But I think we, it might be, yes. We do need to wind up this episode with a bit of a look in our mailbag. And before we start, because I know you've got a couple of bits of correspondence you really want to get into, I'd like to point out that after last episode, where we were talking about the mailbag being a metaphor, and we don't actually have a mailbag because it's all electronic, well, someone said a mailbag. And and here it is. It's it's this big leather and it's been well preserved. I I don't think it's new, but it's been well preserved. And if we ever do get correspondence in physical form, we can put it in the mailbag and we know it will be safe and secure. So thank you, anonymous donor.
1: Or alternatively, we could print out the
0: emails that we do get, put them in envelopes and put them in the mailbag. Well, they would be safe and secure and smelling a little bit of leather. Yes. All right, Stephen, what's your correspondence?
1: Well, uh, first off, a Mr. Reginald Luff writes in asking if we've heard the story of some guy he heard of who was pretty amazing.
0: Yep, well, that Um, sounds worth following up. You probably need a little bit
1: more detail, don't we, really, for that one?
0: Yep, yep, I'd say so, but it's tantalizing. (laughs) Yeah, that was. A Sharon Sheriff asks who our favourites
1: are when it comes to the people, places and events that we've researched for the podcast, which I thought was a really good question. That is a good one. Um, I I kind of find myself drawn to the amazing people that we've looked at.
0: Mm.
1: And I, I just find it really impossible to single out one person. But if pressed, I would name Edward Gilby. But given that he's the subject of one of our future podcasts, that's not really going to mean much to you, Sharon. So sorry about that.
0: But she does need to keep listening, though.
1: Oh, yes, yeah, she's she got to listen to find out all about Edward Gilby. Excellent. And I, um, and lastly, a self-confessed addict of magic mushrooms, Mr. James Dippy, wants us to let us wanted to let us know that he's seen some pretty weird stuff.
0: Mm, I have no doubt about that.
1: Again, that no one needs fleshing out a bit more. I think.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. But I'm looking at the clock on the wall here of Apocryphal Australia headquarters. And I think, as they say in the classics, that's about all we have time for. Our time is up. So I think until next time, we will sign off. So that's all from me, Michael Pryor.
1: And from me, Stephen Higgins.
0: And we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody.
1: Bye. And don't forget to follow, like, subscribe.
0: Yeah, all that stuff. It's good. Mm You've been listening to Apocryphal Australia, a podcast dedicated to giving new life to aspects of history in the same way that Dr. Frankenstein gave new life to remains that should have stayed where they were. And that's probably a bad analogy, but we don't resile from it. Resile? Us? That's not what we're on about. Frank and fearless explorers of the back blocks and byways of the past, that's what you can count on every episode. So subscribe, set your reminders, get everyone on side and be ready for your next episode of Apocryphal Australia, coming to a listening device near you. So, until then, be kind to yourself and others, OK?